The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. In chapter 5 so far, we have seen that Jesus has invited the anger of religious leaders for healing on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a holy day meant to be a gift to Israel for renewal and redemption and regeneration after four centuries of slavery in Egypt where they were told that what they were and their identity and their value and worth is in what they made. And God said, no, your identity is in who I am and what I am doing through you. So Sabbath was a very precious thing to Israel. It was a gift. It was meant to renew, to rest, to restore. And so for Jesus, the heal on the Sabbath was to fulfill the Sabbath's purpose. But there were these group of guys, the religious leaders, who saw that they believed, at least, they needed to create rules around the rules, that they needed to protect people from inviting or incurring God's wrath on them for breaking the Sabbath. And so they created these sort of fences around the law of their own rules. And when they saw that Jesus told a man to pick up his mat on the Sabbath day, they got angry because he was breaking their rules and upsetting their power. So Jesus, through basically the rest of the chapter, has told them why he has the right to heal. First and foremost, he is the son of God. Secondly, he has the power to resurrect from death. So if he can raise somebody from death to life, surely he has the power and the right to heal somebody. And thirdly, he has the authority to judge and to give eternal life to whom he will. Why? Because of the relationship he has with the Father. See, the relationship between the Father and the Son is so close, he says in verse 30 of our first verse today, I can do nothing, nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus, as John has already told us, is the word of God, who is God and who is mysteriously also with God. And because he is God and with God, we know that when we see Christ on earth, he is mimicking and reflecting exactly the will of the Father in heaven. We likened it to putting your hand in front of a mirror so that whatever is occurring in heaven with the Father is also occurring on earth with the Son. In other words, Jesus' answer to why he can heal on the Sabbath is because he's God. The religious leaders didn't like this. And in verse 18, we're told this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not because he was breaking the Sabbath, Maybe they could overlook that. But he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they thought this guy was a liar. There's no way he's God. We know who he's supposed to be. If he's not lying, then maybe he's crazy. He's a lunatic. And that's the best case scenario here because clearly this man cannot be God. But he's not lying. Neither is he a lunatic. He's the Lord. And so Jesus continues his explanation calling now on witnesses to testify to the fact that he is the Son of God, the Lord of all. In verse 31, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He begins this passage of Scripture. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It's a strange thing to us. I think it's a little bit difficult to understand. In fact, this whole passage, if we're honest with ourselves, is a little bit difficult to understand. What does Jesus mean? I'll be honest, when I first came to this verse and I read that, I, the first thing I thought of was John 14, 6. Well, isn't Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? And if he's the truth, then why can't he bear witness about himself? Well, of course he can. 
But what I think Jesus is doing here is he's playing by the religious leaders' rules. He's speaking a language that they would understand. He doesn't need people to validate him. He created people, and he is the source of all validation as capital T truth. But according to Torah, according to the law, witnesses are needed to corroborate a claim. And this is the rule that Jesus is playing by for the sake of the religious leaders. He's going to make this point later in John 8 when he says again to the religious leaders. So spoiler alert, they don't learn here. Right? We're, we're still going to see them opposing Jesus. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So what Jesus is about to do is he's about to give them two or three testimonies. Why? Because in Deuteronomy, in chapters 19 and 17, in the law, it says if somebody is convicted of a crime or accused of a crime, I should say not convicted, but accused of a crime, or if somebody commits blasphemy and deserves death, before you can convict them of the crime or carry out the execution, you need two or three witnesses. And so what have the religious leaders done to Jesus so far? They've accused him of the crime of blasphemy. They're seeking to kill him. Jesus says, not so fast. Let me, for your sake, even though I don't need them, let me bring for you three witnesses that will testify that what I am saying is true. It's difficult for us to, to think along these lines, right? Didn't he just heal a guy? <laughs> is that not evidence enough? Well, you have to put yourself in their shoes. You see, in our day of social media influencers and self-promotion, that's kind of the way you build your platform, right? We don't need validation. We don't need credentials. What we need is followers. We need a little blue check mark next to our Twitter handle because that indicates we have a lot of people that believe in us and truth is found in the masses. That's not the way the ancient world worked. And I suggest it shouldn't be the way the modern world works, but unfortunately, right now it does. So here, the Jews are looking at Jesus and thinking, well, who vetted you? What rabbi school did you go to? Which seminary did you graduate from? I don't see a PhD at the end of your name. Where's your witnesses? Where's your testimonies? In fact, what I think was happening was because he didn't have these credentials like they did, they were going around to the people and saying, don't believe this guy. I know he healed him. That's, I don't know what to do with that, but please don't listen to him because he didn't go to my school or he doesn't have my degree. He needs validation and witnesses. And so Jesus says in verse 32, I do have them. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears is true. Who is he? The father. Why do we know? The rest of the passage tells us that the father has sent witnesses to testify of the son. And he brings up three witnesses in particular, the max you need, right, according to the law. The first witness is John the Baptist. The second witness is the father working miraculously through the son or the miraculous signs of the father performed through the son. And then third, scripture itself is a witness to Christ. If you needed some kind of validation in a courtroom setting, uh, what greater witnesses can you bring forward to convince somebody than God himself, his prophets, his works, and his word? Jesus uh, points out the obvious, though. He says in verse 33 through 36, you sent John, so this is the first witness he gives. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man. I don't need John. But I say these things so that you might be saved. I'm trying to communicate to you on a level that you would understand. 
John, he, was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice in him for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Yeah, it's interesting that the religious leaders initially liked John the Baptist, and I don't think it's difficult to see why. The Pharisees were yearning for two things. One, a conquering Messiah to come to overthrow Israel, but before that, two, a righteous nation that would move God to send this Messiah. It's why there were such sticklers for the law. We need to garner God's attention and love for us by obeying what he says to do. And if we can follow the law well enough then he's finally going to liberate us from Gentile rule and overthrow Rome, and he's going to do it through a Messiah. Now, if that's the hope of the first century religious leaders, think about how John fits into that. What was he talking about? Repent. Good. We want our people to repent. Thank you, John. <laughs> For the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. Not the kingdom of Rome. How is it going to come? By this messianic figure this person who is coming that is greater than him, you see? And so the religious leaders are reminded by Jesus. You sent to John, and he's borne witness to truth. You heard what he had to say. You liked what he had to say, at least for a season. Again, not that he needs John, but he's pointing out the fact that they listened to him. And the truth that John was bearing witness to is this coming of the Messiah? Is this coming of the kingdom? And I think above all, in the kind of thesis statement of John the Baptist's ministry, in John 1.34, he says, I have seen and borne witness that the one he's talking about, that this is the Son of God. Okay, now the religious leaders are not on board anymore, Right? We're cool with you when you say the kingdom's coming, and we're happy with you when you say a Messiah's coming, but the second you tell us it's this guy, I don't know. We're not on Team John anymore. So Jesus' question is simple. What changed? What changed? Your perception, didn't it? You had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be like and who he was supposed to be. You listened to him for a season this burning and shining lamp, flickering darkness for a temporary relief of the dark. But the second the light came into the world, whom Jesus is described by the evangelist as the light of men, the second he comes into the world and you look around, <laughs> it's different than being in a room lit by a candle and being lit by the sun. You start to see the imperfections and the problems with us, right? How many of us get ready to go to work by candlelight? The answer is none, because it's not the 19th century, right? And we, and we like the fluorescent lights, so we can see everything about us. But then some of us are like, no, I don't like what I see there, right? Maybe I prefer candlelight. You see, this is the, the, the analogy here that Jesus is using. Bright light is shining on the fact that the religious leaders have sin in their life, and they don't like it, because they feel their power slipping away. John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus, Brad Jason. Scripture says. Here's a convicting question, and one that I, I want us to ask as a church. Who are we in this story so far? Right? We're not Jesus. We'll just throw that one out there. So we're left with two options. The religious leaders are John the Baptist. And 
the honest question is, we're the religious leaders. We should strive to be John the Baptist, right? And the way you know that is by asking this question. Am I someone that Christ would point to as evidence as a witness to him? Am I somebody that if there's a crowd gathered and people were in opposition to Jesus, Jesus would talk to the crowd and say, well, him or her, they've been bearing witness about me for a few years now. How have you not heard about me? And we're like, you know, that meme with that monkey puppet is like looking and then looking away. You know what I'm talking about? In other words, do I testify of Jesus in my words and deeds to a degree that if challenged by skeptics or unbelievers, the Lord would point to me and say, he should have been talking about me this whole time. She should have been bearing witness about me. Would the Lord consider you a burning and shining lamp, someone who in word and deed brings light of the gospel to a dark world? What this means is like John the Baptist, we must daily position ourselves before Christ in humility, confessing that, look, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. And he who comes after me is greater, ranks before me. And do you with your words, not just with your actions and the nice things that we do, but with your words audibly, vocally, tell people about Jesus, like John the Baptist did, proclaiming that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Those are hard questions, right? These are questions I was asking myself this week uh, and became very convicted to the point where I wanted to, to ask you, uh, as Mars Hill and this local body of believers I love so much, um, can we challenge ourselves in this? I believe that one of the greatest weaknesses here at Mars Hill is evangelism. As a pastor, I often take time to reflect and meditate on the state of this church that I love very much, of which I'm a member, so this is myself included. And uh, we're familiar with Revelation, how it opens. There are seven churches and their angels get letters and it's kind of an encouragement or an indictment um, admonishment uh, or challenge to the state of those churches before the Lord Jesus. And, and so one of the questions I use to like reflect and meditate on, on the state of Mars and, and our standing before God in, in, in our community is this. If Mars Hill were re to receive one of those letters, um, what would it say? What would it say? I think one of the lines in the letter would read like this. You do well by your love of the word and how it transforms you. Why then do you keep it to yourself? Why do you keep it inside of you? This includes all of us. I'm, I'm not just saying it's the people at Mars Hill. I'm saying all the people at Mars Hill, the pastors and staff including. And this is super convicting to me personally uh, because a few months ago I was contracted by a publisher to write a book on evangelism and apathy. And this week I thought about and confessed that I've spent more time thinking and writing about evangelism than I've actually done it. And the convicting part of it, at least for me, is not coming from a sense of guilt, like the Holy Spirit's guilt-tripping me for not doing something, but more from a sense of remorse, that I've neglected opportunities or not doing something that I want to do. 
But I want more people to know about Jesus, the Jesus who saved me and loved me. Not so that they'd come here to Mars Hill if they do, great, but so that they would be resurrected from death and ushered into the kingdom of God. I think this is such an important shortcoming at Mars that your pastors and staff, I want to share with you, have covenanted with each other to evangelize. And one of the ways that we're doing this is by sharing stories weekly at our staff meetings about evangelism. And we're doing this because we know that if we can say to one another, I have borne witness to the truth, that one day the Lord Jesus will say of us, well done, good and faithful servant, you are a bright and shining lamp. And the more people that are redeemed by the power of the gospel, the more people that will be there present, smiling when the Lord Jesus says that of Mars Hill in agreement and nodding and saying, our Lord used you that day to get me here, to stand in the presence and in community with you, my brother and sister in Christ. And I think one of the reasons we don't like evangelize is because we're afraid or we think, uh, once I start this, I got to see it through to completion, right? Like we're farmers and it's March and you put the seed in the ground and you're like, I can't leave until this is 13 ears of corn, right? <laughs> That's just not the way it works, right? So I want to share an example from, from my life just last week um, of, of what this has looked like, for, at least for me. I met a young Marine in active duty and uh, I was in the Air Force. So once we got past the chair force jokes, right, we started talking, like, well, why'd you get on? I mean, it's true. I sat on a chair for like six years straight. Um, why'd you leave the Air Force? And I told him, you know, faith found me. Jesus found me. God found me in the gospel. And uh, he was a good shepherd who left 99 sheep and came after me, the, the black sheep, the rebellious one, and grabbed me. So I got something different for your life than this. And, uh, and he, he had to go pretty quick, but he asked clarification, like, what do you mean that faith found you? Because usually when I hear stories of, like, religion, it's you have to go find it. And I was like, man, that's not Christianity. Christianity is that faith finds you. Grace finds you. The Lord Jesus comes and finds you. The Father seeks you and brings you in. And that's the story of my life. And he went, hmm, and walked away. I didn't stop him. I was like, can we make a profession? So, right? He goes away. And you know what? The Holy Spirit, like, gave me a sense of calm. And uh, as I'm fond of, of telling people, uh, he had a pebble in his shoe. We've all had pebbles in our shoe. I like hiking. How awful are they? You walk and you just can't get rid of it, and it takes 13 minutes to untie that thing, <laughs> right? So I'm just going to live with it. And a mile later, you're like, nope. <laughs> Why? Because it bothers you. There's something in there that has to be taken out and examined, right? And faith finding him, that's a pebble in his shoe. He can walk off a mile, two miles, three miles, but eventually it's going to irritate him so much that he's going to have to stop and ask, why does faith find me rather than me finding faith? A seed's been planted. It's as simple as that. I was reading 1 Thessalonians in my personal study this week, and I came to this passage in chapter 5, 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I want this to apply to us uh, as a church, that we would be admonished in love and confess that we're idle in evangelism, but pray that the Holy Spirit stirs us to be burning and shining lamps and that we would be encouraged as a church not to 
let people, or not to let fear of how people will perceive us dictate what we say. I mean, look back at Jesus' example. How many people rejected him? How many people were stubborn? How many people came to him but then left? How many people opposed him? And yet, there were a few who heard him and were regenerated and resurrected from death to life, were liberated from sin, right? Those are the few we're after, throwing the seeds in the parable. And can we help one another in our weaknesses to encourage one another, in our stubbornness to challenge one another, and in our victories to rejoice and to share those stories? And can we be patient with one another? Because I, I think our church needs, for this, it needs to undergo a culture change, right? We, we've have, have we created a culture here at Marcel where I believe we have a very high respect for the word of God. And it's very important to us. And that is a very, very good thing. I don't want to give up an inch. In fact, I want more in our culture of being a body of believers that loves the word of God. But we also need to challenge ourselves to, to allow our culture to grow to be one that looks more like John the Baptist in the wilderness, a bright and shining lamp, and less like religious leaders stuffed to the brim filled with the word of God, yet dim and dull in our witness to him. And culture change takes a long time to accomplish, but what other goal is more lofty than seeking in obedience to fulfill what the Lord has called us to do, to go, therefore, and make disciples of the nation, starting with this nation right here, right now? I want us to be John the Baptist in this story. I know you want us to be John the Baptist in this story. He was a witness to God's love incarnate, the Lord Jesus. But the religious leaders, they didn't see it that way, though. They saw John the Baptist as a witness first to their desires and power, and then almost like a traitor. And when John the Baptist testified of Jesus, they dropped him. So apparently, John the Baptist is not a good enough witness for the religious leaders. Jesus goes to the second one, miraculous signs of the Father performed through the Son. Verse 36 through 37, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me. So there's the witness, the works, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent, himself, or sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard in his form you've never seen. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you should believe who I am because of what I've done. All of Jesus' works thus far, these miraculous signs, have been from the Father through the Son to testify about the Son. Well, what are those signs? John tells us, so we're not left in mystery about them. The first one was the wedding at Cana, the miracle at Cana. The second one was the healing of the official son, again, in Cana. And then the third so far, there will be more, but so far, uh, the healing of the lame man at Bethesda. So why signs? Why signs is the second witness? Well, Jesus is, is pointing out that according to Jewish teaching, the Father can't be seen, he's invisible. You've never seen him. And that the Father can't be heard. The last time Israel heard God was in Exodus 20 in Mount Sinai. So how do you get to know somebody you can't see, you can't hear? The way you do it is through their actions and their works. And God is now working through Jesus to point back to himself to say, if you want to hear God and you want to see God, look at me, Jesus. So it's obvious. 
at least for the religious leaders, that they should have recognized that all of the signs, the miracles that Jesus was doing was pointing to him because they had such a good, at least memorized, understanding of the Old Testament. It's not as clear to us, and that's what I want to spend the next part doing, is to show what Jesus is trying to say. But to them, it should have been patently obvious. Let me explain. Let's look at these miracles one by one. The first one, water into wine at Canaan. You remember this miracle? Jesus is invited to a wedding. It's a time of joy and celebration. The problem, wine ran out. So poor planning or somebody needs to cut it off at last number three, right? And, and in this parable, we discussed how wine is representative of this joyous celebration, this joy. The solution, Jesus miraculously turns a jug of water into wine. That's important because wine is connected to the Passover Seder, which we'll see in a minute. Looking forward from that miracle, it's pretty obvious, at least if we're careful studies or students of the scripture, what Jesus was pointing at. Jesus' crucifixion famously culminated in the spilling of what two liquids from his side? Blood and water. The centurion, one of the soldiers, pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out what? Blood and water, a red liquid and a clear liquid coming out together. It's a clear fulfillment of what Jesus had told his disciples the night before at Passover Seder, holding up the cup of wine and saying, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out. Here comes the spear, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And what greater joy comes in the death of Christ, paradoxically, ironically, than for us to be forgiven by his sins. Now, could the religious leaders have known all that? No. It hasn't happened yet in their timeline. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. But what they should have been doing is looking backward into the Old Testament because that miracle at Canaan was a wake-up call for the religious leaders to remember what God has done with blood and water, wine and water, and look forward to what God is going to do with blood and water, wine and water. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, how did God liberate them? What was the catalyst? Under the leadership of Moses, there was a series of plagues or curses. What was the first curse? Do you remember? And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand out over the waters of Egypt, rivers, canals, their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become what? Blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone, water turning into blood, water miraculously transformed into blood, which brings death. Do you see the connection? The first miracle that liberated Israel from Egypt was water transforming into blood miraculously, but that brought death and sorrow. The first miracle that Jesus performed was turning water into wine miraculously, which didn't bring sorrow and death, but joy and life. In a sense, Jesus' miracle is kind of a topsy-turvy of what happened in Egypt, isn't it? Where the transformed water in Egypt brought death, the transformed water in Canaan brought joy. And both are pointing towards something greater, the crucifixion of Christ. This death, this water and blood spilt to bring about the greatest joy. 
That's sign number one. What about the second sign? The second miracle is the healing of the official son. Remember this one? Again, we're in Canaan. And John makes it a point to remind us that Cana is where the water turned into wine. So this is a very important detail for John to bring up. What happened? A government official had a sick son who was on his deathbed, about to die. The government official heard that Jesus was back in Cana, heard about the miracle before, so he traveled all the way up from Capernaum to Cana in the mountains to ask Jesus to heal him. Jesus doesn't go with him, but he speaks. Go, your son will live. And so the official traveled home and found out that the exact moment Jesus says, go, your son will live, his son got better. His son didn't die. The government official's son was healed. The government official's son did not die. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Like the first, the second miracle should have alerted the religious leaders that God is on the move. He's doing something here. Why? Well, question. Back to Egypt. As Israel was being liberated from Egypt, what was the last curse on Egypt that caused Pharaoh to finally relent and let the Hebrews go? What was that last one? Exodus 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne. See that? The death of the firstborn, a child, a son of the government official, king of Egypt, is what caused Pharaoh to let them go. As a result of that death, the people of God were liberated from slavery. Do you see the connection? This is awesome. The first miracle that began to liberate Egypt or liberate Israel from Egypt was water turning into blood. And the first sign that Jesus gives is Jesus turning water into wine, foreshadowing the crucifixion in our liberation out of the Egypt of sin. Now, the last miracle that liberated, Egypt from, from, that liberated Israel from Egypt was the death of a government official's son. And the second miracle that Jesus performed was the healing of a government official's son. Like before, it's kind of a topsy-turvy miracle, isn't it? Where the government official's son died so that uh, God's work would be done. Now, a government official's son is being healed. And how much joy is that bringing? Why? What's being communicated to us is that the firstborn of God, the son of God, is the one who will stand in our place of these curses. This first and second sign are actually the first and last curses of Egypt. They're bookends, which means all of the curses of Egypt are in mind here. The curses that God put on Egypt to bring liberation Jesus is now taking on himself. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. How can you not see this, religious leaders, and know that God is staying true to the promises he made and his actions foretold centuries ago? These works that Jesus is doing are ending what God started. That Jesus, the true and greater Moses, has come to liberate us from the Egypt of sin. But he's not doing it like he did it before. All the curses that Egypt received from God, from rivers of blood to the death of sons, he himself is taking through the shedding of his own blood and the death of the firstborn of God. It is Jesus who will suffer the curse that comes from turning water into wine. 
or that turns water into blood, shedding both. It is Jesus who suffers the curse of death as the firstborn. Why? So that we can experience the joy of healing. Third sign. One of the key things to look for in the first century in the coming of the Messiah was certain things that the Messiah would do. Isaiah foretells the coming of the Messiah and he envisions a day when some really cool things are going to happen. And in verse 5 and 6 of Isaiah 35, we read these words predicting the day of the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In other words, when the Messiah will come, he will heal and he's going to heal specific things. And one of those things in specific is a lame man. What was Jesus' third miracle? The healing of a lame man. He has come to fulfill what was promised by God centuries earlier through the prophecies of Isaiah. So pulling all this together, Jesus has come to bring us joy through death. Where death came as a curse for sin, seen in Egypt's rivers turned to blood, now Jesus is bringing joy through death, turning water into wine, spilling his own water and blood. How? By taking on God's curse for himself as a result of our sin and dying as God's firstborn son. It's not our firstborn sons that die. It's God's firstborn son that dies. It's no longer we who die, but God through God's son who takes that curse of death for us. Why? So that we may be healed and see the fulfillment of Sabbath rest. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, it's not a mistake what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, where I'm doing it, and what order I'm doing them. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Do you see it? It's incredible. It's absolutely amazing. The works and miracles, the signs performed by Jesus are witnesses of him that he is Lord. God has orchestrated redemptive history to point toward Christ. And Christ is now pointing back to that redemptive history to point to himself, you see. I think this is why Jesus ends with his third witness on Scripture, because he's reminding them of what God has done in redemptive history past. So he says in verses 37 through 40, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in me, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What's the indictment? You search the scriptures. The witness is about me. You search them because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's ironic. This is supposed to be pointing you to life, but you think in it you are finding life. Out of all the people that should have known Jesus was coming, it would have been these religious leaders who poured over Scripture. They read it daily, memorized it, recited it. They believed that by internalizing God's Word, they would be saved. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But they're completely missing eternal life right in front of them. This is a signpost to the Lord Jesus. They're more enamored with the sign itself. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, 
the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you'd known the Father also. For now on, you do know him because you know me. To see the Son is to see the Father. To know the Son is to know life. To know the scriptures is to know the Son. All of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. This is a testament and testimony to the Lord Jesus. Well, what does he mean by that? I've gone through the Old Testament a couple of times. I've never seen Jesus Christ's name in there. Anyway, well, you have. It's been Joshua, right? But that's for something else. But I've, ne I've never seen that. What, what do you mean? Look again and read Scripture the way that Jesus is teaching us to read Scripture, that he is the umbrella over it all, the lenses through which we understand what we are seeing. Sometimes Scripture speaks implicitly about Jesus' coming. First time we see that implicit uh, looking forward to the Messiah is Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God is talking about the curses as a consequence to sin. He gets to Eve. He says, look, I'm going to fix this. And the way I'm going to fix it is through your offspring, not plural, but singular in Hebrew, one person. Through one person, one offspring, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent that did this. So we know that there's a person coming. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses prophesies that there's going to be somebody like him that's going to come from the brothers, come from the Hebrews. So we know that the person that's coming from Eve is supposed to be a Hebrew, and he's going to be like Moses' leadership, somebody who carried and internalized and taught the law. Then in Isaiah 7.14, we're told specifically that this person's going to come through a virgin, if you take him bio 101, you know, that can't happen. <laughs> so this is a miracle, right? A virgin will conceive, and they're going to be called Emmanuel. What kind of person is this going to be? A mere prophet? No, greater than a prophet. Emmanuel means God with us. The God-man coming through a virgin. Then we're told in Micah 5.2 that this Messiah is going to rule Israel forever, having been born from Bethlehem. If you couldn't hear it over the pop, the word was Bethlehem. <laughs> Bethlehem? I don't know how else to say, but this is kind of like saying, hey, the next leader of the world is going to come from Wilmer, Alabama. Can you believe it? All of you would say, no. I've been through Wilmer. Have you been through Wilmer? I've been through Wilmer. I blunk and missed it. I think is past tense for it to blink. I don't know. But Bethlehem's a tiny farm town. There's no way the ruler of Israel is going to seat on God's throne and, and, and enact judgment and authority over the whole world from that tiny podunk town. It's true. And then finally, we know that this serpent head crushing seed of Eve, who is from the Hebrews like Moses, is God with us conceived through a virgin and coming from Bethlehem would be preceded, Malachi tells us, by a messenger who will come proclaiming the day of the Lord and the kingdom of God is at hand. There was a chorus of witnesses to Jesus being the son of God. John the Baptist, miraculous signs that Jesus was performing and the scripture all shouted to the religious leaders, the Messiah is here, it's Jesus, he's the son of God, believe him and give him glory. And as Jesus begins to end his defense, 
for why he's the son of God, what do the religious leaders do? They stay deaf. They stay angry, as we'll see in the rest of the story. They thought they knew God, but didn't recognize that God was standing right in front of them. In fact, they were so unfamiliar with the God they claimed to know and to love that they sought to kill him. Let that one sink in again, because it's really important. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What a dangerous place to be in, and good thing we're not like them, right? It's really easy for us to shake our heads in disbelief at the religious leaders. How could they love the Bible more than the subject of the Bible? It seems kind of silly, doesn't it? How can they love the lowercase w word of God more than they love the capital W word of God? See, the religious leaders had this problem. They loved the revelation more. They loved the revelation of God more than they loved the God that was being revealed. You see what I'm saying? They loved the pursuit of God more than being pursued. Essentially, they were more enamored with the text messages that they were getting than with the person who was sending them. And the result was a false and dangerous sense of knowing someone well whom they've never met. You do not see him. You do not hear him. Jesus says. Surely that can't happen to us, right? Well, I think it can, and it does happen to us all the time. The word theology is actually two words from Greek. One word is theos, not thanos. So I feel like that needs to be said very clearly before we move on. <laughs> theos, which means God, and logia, which means the study of. Theology is Theos, God, Logia, study of. It is possible to love theology more than Theos. It is possible to love theology more than you love Theos. You know what I'm saying? Now, this is fairly obvious to some of us, right? We all know the archetypal theology nerd and the arrogance that's associated with it. They dive into books. It's like, well, yeah, technically, the hypostatic union, right? You're like, come on, guy. I just asked if you wanted some peanuts and water. Right? Why, have we, why did we have to go down this road? Using words like 10 syllables long. It's pretty obvious that they don't really know the God they think they know, right? And the, the analogy I like to use is uh, if somebody asked me to describe my wife, like I've got two options. Option one, I can answer it like this. So they say, like, what's your wife like? I'd say, oh, well, in essence... She is a composite of hydrogen. No, she's not. I know that's not true. Oxygen, carbon. I guess hydrogen's in there somewhere. Calcium, hopefully, phosphorus. She has lived on this earth X amount of times it has rounded the sun. I'm not going to tell you how many times. I would get in trouble, but she has. She has a declared will, that which she makes public, and an internal will, that which she keeps private. Her actions produce work. She holds the role of mother and wife, she prefers the breed pugs to other canines. Yeah. What kind of psychopath answers the question like that, <laughs> right? You would be like, okay, well, and what's your name again? Because I'm never going to talk to you. <laughs> or when someone asks me, what's your wife like? I can answer this way. She's a godly woman, and I have watched her groan, quick to repentance, and chasing after virtue. She's beautiful in my eyes. She pushes me personally to love deeper and with greater patience. She's very selfless 
and an endless well of giving and patience and kindness, and I know because I'm a recipient of those things. She is a great witness in her workplace as a godly businesswoman, and what she does there makes me proud, and she prefers the breed pugs to other canines. Like, that one's not going away, right? Do you love God as a subject, or do you love God as your creator and redeemer? Do you love God as something to study, or do you love him as your creator and your redeemer? If you love him as a subject, you're no different than the religious leaders. And you might object, like, well, I don't like theology, so I'm off the hook. Yes, maybe you don't love theology, but I would argue, one, you do, everyone's a theologian, and two, you like the things that theology produces, like cool worship and neat spaces to gather and good community to be around and raise your children in. You can love all those things more than you love God, too. So how do we combat this? I think we do it by, by asking ourselves some questions periodically. And the, the first one, I think, is the most important one. Am I open to having my idea of God challenged by Scripture? Let me put a big caveat on this. I'm not saying we need to ask ourselves, am I open to having my idea of God challenged, period. I'm asking, are we open to having our idea of God challenged by Scripture? Because Scripture is God's own inerrant, infallible revelation of himself. If you want to know what God is like, listen to him. Because if you're not, and your ideas of God are not constantly being challenged by how he has revealed himself specially through his word, then what's shaping your vision of God? Another question to ask is, do the witnesses of God lead me to defensive anger, like the religious leaders, or to repentant worship, giving God glory. When I read the prophets, when I hear about God's works, when I read scriptures, do I balk at God? Or do I fall to my knees in repentance and worship? Another question to ask is, am I more concerned that people have my same theology than I am a right relationship with God? Will someone's out-of-tune articulation of the Trinity cause me to stop the conversation in its tracks and not move forward until we fix that? Or don't you know that the best way to know someone is not to study them, but to spend time with them? That good theology is a result of a right relationship with God, not necessarily the other way around. Don't hear me say theology is useless. I love theology. I studied it for years. I got degrees in it. I teach it. I read about it. I write about it. And don't hear me that people's out-of-tune ideas of God are inconsequential. They're very consequential. And some of them have very serious implications. But what's more important is not what I think about God, but what God thinks about me. Because when I, when I know what, what God thinks about me, it will begin to shape what I think about God, and a relationship develops it, and out of it, theology comes grounded in Scripture. Do you love God as a subject, or do you love God as your creator and redeemer? The religious leaders loved God more as something to be studied rather than someone to be worshipped. And we daily are at risk of the same thing. You know, it is one, a really big pleasure of mine to share this with you, that I got to know a guy this past week who I firmly believe gets this point well. His name is Devin Meyer. And uh, actually, like, after speaking to him for like an hour, it became clear to me that 
even though he loves theology, he loves theos more. And that he has a right understanding of theology as a way to develop our relationship with God, not to worship or to spend more time with. He's more concerned with what God thinks about him rather than what he thinks about God. And do you know what that right priority has led him to do? To make a public declaration of faith in the Lord Jesus right here, right now, at this baptistry to my left. That's where loving God more than loving about God leads us, straight into his arms, in his death and in his resurrection of life. That's what baptism is all about, a public declaration of dying with Christ and not from our own power, but from a hand that pulls us out of the grave spiritually and one day physically forever. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to witness newness of life in our new brother. I've had the opportunity to know Devin since he was a young guy, a lot smaller when I first met him. He's bigger than me now, but Devin, um, I saw him at church a few weeks ago, and uh, I said, man, it's been a long time. I mean, last time you didn't have facial hair. Let's catch up. And uh, he uh, grabbed breakfast with me, and as we ate breakfast with each other, he shared with me that a few months ago he prayed to receive Christ. Now, I've known Devin for a long time, and I used to work at the church that he would, uh, his, he went to the school that was uh, attached to the church. And I was like, well, well, tell me about that. That's interesting. So Devin grew up in church, and, and he uh, obviously, as he grew older, he continued to go in church, and then he also went off to college. And just through a series of life decisions and also things that occurred, he came to a place where he recognized that he needed something from Christ that he did not have. And so he shared with me that in his room at his house, he recognized that he no longer wanted to try to pursue after God and try to earn God's favor, but he just wanted to surrender to who God was. And he said, God, I'm going to trust you for who you say you are and how to get to you, and I'm going to trust in your son and that salvation is a free gift. And so he did. He placed his trust in Christ. And so today he's coming here to publicly profess, what, which is a great thing to say, I would almost say a witness, to witness to all of you what God has done in his life. Not what he has done, nothing that he has earned, but it's a free gift of grace. So as his brothers and sisters in this house today, I would ask you as we are about to baptize him, that as he comes out of this water to show us a picture of what God has done to his life, that we celebrate what God has done by bringing Devin into the family of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Devin, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Buried into death, raised to walk a newness of life. end of service, isn't it? Well, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go this week.